This week's Fiblet is brought to you by the Palmer Cronin Team at Guaranteed Rate. If you're in the market for a home mortgage and want to take advantage of today's low interest rates, you can't go wrong with Chris and Joe of the Palmer Cronin Team at Guaranteed Rate. Make new memories in a home of your own this year. When it comes time to buy, they will make the process as smooth, simple, and hassle-free as possible. Contact Chris and Joe today by clicking on their link at factorfictionpodcast.com. Tell them Laura sent you. Hi there, Factor Fiction fans. It's time for another fun Fiblet episode. Fiblets are the Factor Fiction mini-sodes where I read you four news articles. Three were published articles about real events, but one is my own creative fiction. It's your job to determine which one I made up. Listen carefully because it is hard to know what's fact or fiction. Ready to play? Welcome back, listeners. I thought it would be fun for today's episode to focus on crimes involving some type of insurance fraud. I found the following in the Inter-Ocean. It was published on February 4th, 1912, under the title, Insurance Has Been Responsible for Many Terrible Crimes. Like love, banking, gold, tea, tobacco, wine, and many other blessings, life insurance, when approached from the angle of abuse, has been responsible for many terrible crimes. It has been said that more crimes have been committed in the name of God, of religion, and of love than for all other causes combined. Therefore, it cannot be any reproach to insurance to say that more crimes have been committed because of its existence than for almost any other commercial reasons. So that got me thinking, and I started investigating insurance fraud. Here are your choices today. Choice number one. Investigators for the Royal Insurance Company discovered arson was responsible for the fire that burned the Lantern factory to the ground last week. The fire destroyed the building and all of the equipment and goods at the Lantern Soap factory located on Morgan Street. Two night watchmen employed by the Central Manufacturing District, Mr. Joseph Ames and Mr. Silas Gross, were severely wounded in the flames. The fire patrol was called to the scene at midnight to extinguish the blaze, but they arrived too late to stop the conflagration. Ames and Gross, though, were pulled from the burning building and taken to the North Chicago Hospital. Both men are home now, recovering from their injuries. The Lanson Soap Factory was insured with Royal Insurance Company for $120,000, and factory owner Helias H. Grange wasted no time in claiming it for himself. Mr. Grange has long been held in high esteem in the city and lives in a marble front mansion on Ada Street. However, Royal Insurance Company investigators discovered that the Lantern Soap Factory was in arrears on its mortgage and that Mr. Grange owed money to a number of stores for debts incurred by his wife, Mrs. Agnes Grange, age 24. The two were married last August, shortly after the death of Mrs. Eleanor Lantern Grange, Mr. Grange's first wife. Detectives at the building discovered the use of accelerants in the main levels of the factory floors, an area filled with highly flammable soap production supplies. Although no one has been accused of committing the arson, the news is too bad for Mr. Grange. He will not be able to collect on his policy and must find some other way to rebuild his company and pay his debts. 
The investigation is ongoing into the perpetrator of the fire. Choice number two. A notorious insurance swindler captured. From the Inter-Ocean, July 7, 1874, page 2. If the resurrection of dead men in these days of progressive science is not of so common occurrence as in ye olden time, the bringing to life of deadbeats by shrewd detectives seems to be on the increase. A better illustration of this form of miracle has not been furnished this law-loving people of Indianapolis for many a day than was presented yesterday by the arrest of the now-notorious insurance swindler D.K. Boswell of Muncie. In September 1871, Boswell took out a policy of $10,000 from the Franklin Life Insurance Company of this city for the benefit of his wife, Mary V. Boswell. The cash was paid and the first semi-annual premium settled satisfactorily. Boswell at this time was assisting his brothers in this city in the sale of a fruit dryer and to all appearances was an honorable man working hard to earn an honest livelihood and to pay the premium on a large life insurance policy, which, in case of sudden or accident death, should place his wife beyond need. In September 1872, a few days prior to the falling due of the second annual installment, Mr. and Mrs. Boswell determined on taking a tour to Missouri, and after notifying the officers of the insurance company and assuring them they would be back in time to make the payment, started on their journey. Nothing more was seen or heard of the tourist until the 24th of September, three days after the second annual payment on the policy should have been made. Mrs. Boswell entered President Hubbard's office, dressed in deep mourning, and with tears in her eyes, related to the dignified insurance officer the recent great afflictions which had so suddenly and unexpectedly befallen her. My dear husband and I had taken the boat at St. Louis for a point up the Missouri, she sobbed and were nearing the place of our destination when suddenly a terrific explosion took place, and she knew nothing more until she found herself in the charge of some kind people who were administering to her wants. Then, for the first time, did she know that the boat had been blown into atoms, and all on board, save a few, herself among the number, either drowned or burned to death with the wreck. Her dear husband was of this latter number, for no traces of him had been seen since. She had hurried back, therefore, heartbroken and wretched as she was, to pay the annual premium already past due and claim the amount of the policy on his life. The story seemed a plausible one. A boat had been blown up on the Missouri and a great many drowned and burned to death. Why should not Boswell be one of the victims? He had started from Missouri, or at least he had said he was going there, and the time of the wreck of the steamer corresponded with the time of their absences. Still... Something about the case led the president to suspect a put-up job, and he refused to pay the amount of the policy, preferring to test the payment on the technical ground that the second premium not having been paid, the policy was lapsed. Such a course, too, would give them an opportunity of finding out if the man was really dead. The Travelers Life Insurance Company of Hartford, in which Boswell also held a policy for $5,000, compromised a suit that Mrs. Boswell had commenced by paying $2,500. With this amount, the charming young widow began a vigorous prosecution of the Franklin Company. For 18 months, matters hung in the courts of Delaware County. Meanwhile, detectives had been set to work to elucidate the mystery. Little by little, information leaked out that the man Boswell was still in existence this side of the grave. Until, on the 9th of last month, information was received at the office of the Franklin Company that this man had been seen in Galesburg, Illinois, whither Presidents Hubbard and the Sheriff of Delaware County wended their way. 
both recognized the dead man, and in conversation with him, he stated he had been living in Galesburg for the past six months, being known as General Howe. Previous to that time, he had been in Missouri. He stated also that he had been blown up by a steamboat on the Missouri River in 1872, but owing to injuries received, he could remember nothing which took place prior to that time. Not knowing on what charge to arrest him, Mr. Hubbard returned home, but had Mrs. Boswell immediately arrested at Muncie on a charge of perjury and put under bonds of $300 to appear at the next term of court. But could Boswell possibly be ignorant of his wife's attempt to collect the policy on his behalf? Or could Mrs. Boswell be ignorant of her husband's existence? Or had Boswell really forgotten his past history, that he had a wife, that his former home was in Indianapolis, and that his name was Boswell? These were questions which engaged the brain of, the, of President Hubbard for several days, and the more he thought of it, the thinner they appeared. Accordingly, he again went to work to solve the mystery, and having satisfied himself that Boswell and his wife must be in collusion, he sent out an agent of the company who tracked him from Galesburg, Illinois, to Davenport, Iowa, and from thence to Duncan and Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and finally to northern Indiana. The agent then returned from instructions, and in company with the ex-sheriff Swain of Delaware County, was immediately ordered to make the arrest. Proper requisitions were made out last Monday, and on yesterday, Boswell was brought to this city, having been captured at Grand Traverse City on a charge of fraud. Just what will be the result of this interesting case cannot now be determined. That he is a swindler of the most consummate type cannot be doubted. But to prove complicity with his wife, or even to prove that his wife knew of his existence while attempting to collect the policy on his life, may not be so easy. At all events, the case promises to be a novel and interesting one. President Hubbard has already expended in the case upward of $5,000. Choice number three. Rathbun pleads not guilty. From the Champaign County News, the 16th of November, 1901, page three. Newell C. Rathbun, accused of killing Charles Goodman in a hotel here by poison, was in the afternoon positively identified by an officer and an acquaintance of the prisoner from Little Rock, where he had lived. Later, Rathbun was arraigned before Mayor Raid on a charge of murder. He pleaded not guilty, and Mayor Raid held him over to the circuit court without bond. The prisoner had no lawyer. After being arraigned, he was taken back to jail. The circuit court will convene in special term Monday, and a grand jury will be impaneled to consider Rathbun's case. Rathbun was identified by Deputy Sheriff Al Chichester and E.J. Glockler. The meeting between the prisoner and the Arkansas visitors took place in Sheriff Rabe's office. Hello, Rathbun, said Glockler. Don't you know me? Yes, you're Glockler, responded the prisoner. Did you give that man the dope? asked Glockler. I am not guilty of the crime as charged. Did your wife know anything about your scheme? She might have thought about it. Why didn't she identify the body as not being yours? I can't tell. She's an excitable woman. What about the statement of Carrie Pryor that you wanted her to go into an insurance swindle with her? She is an enemy of mine. At the conclusion of the interview, Rathbun signed a paper acknowledging his identity. He's reported to have said to fellow prisoners, the officers haven't a thing on which to convict. A man's intention does not mean that he may be convicted. Choice number four. Unger and Brown guilty from the St. Louis Globe Democrat, 
June 11, 1901, page 2. Dr. August M. Unger and F. Waylon Brown, on trial for conspiracy to defraud insurance companies through the death of Miss Mary Deffenbach, were this evening found guilty and sentenced to the penitentiary under the Indeterminate Act. Frank H. Smiley, indicted with Unger and Brown, pleaded guilty and turned state's evidence. It's likely that he will escape with a light sentence. The evidence in the case showed that Unger, Brown, Smiley, and Miss Deffenbach entered into a conspiracy by which Smiley was to appear as the affianced husband of the woman. She was then to be ill and apparently die, leaving him the insurance, which included one policy in a stock company and two in fraternal organizations. The total, aggregating, $25,000. The woman in her will said that she desired her remains to be cremated, and it is supposed that it was the intention to hurry away after her supposed death and cremate another body procured from the hospital. The woman became sick, according to the program, but did not rally and died. Her body was at once cremated. An inquest was held by Assistant Coroner John B. Weckler without a jury, and Weckler returned to the coroner's office a verdict that the woman had died of natural causes. The death of the woman is shrouded in mystery, and physicians on the stand differed widely as to the de- cause of death. The state, however, declared that the woman was murdered, although it could not be positively proven. It is shown that all the insurance carried by the woman was assigned before her death and that her will was drawn up after these assignments had been made. The will had no effect save in the clause touching cremation, and it is claimed by the state that the will was prepared only to facilitate the disposition of the body after death. Folks, those are your choices. Listen to this vintage ad while you ponder them to decide which is the fact or the fiction. Dr. Sandin's electric belt cures without medicine. Rheumatism, lumbago, lame back, sciatica, kidney complaints, stomach or liver ills, nervousness, nervous stability, drains, losses, lost vigor. Dr. Sandin's invention for electrical self-treatment has cured thousands. If possible, call at the office for a free test of those wonder-working body batteries. If not, let me send you a neat illustrated book explaining all about them and also containing several hundred testimonials from Chicago and vicinity. It's free by mail and application. Men suffering the slightest weakness should read my book, Three Classes of Men, pocket edition, free, sealed by mail. Address Dr. Sandin, 183 Clark Street, Chicago. Office hours, 8 to 6, Sundays, 10 to 1. Welcome back, listeners. Now, as with all of these ads, the story of the inventor and the invention of Dr. Sandin's electrical belt is a fascinating one. I've posted a picture of Dr. Sandin's electrical belt on the factorfictionpodcast.com website. So I suggest going there to look at it. I, after, after seeing a picture of it, I was really curious about how it worked. And so I did some research. According to Atlas Obscura, These belts were made accessible to a wide customer base. They came in different sizes for both men and women and were priced between $4 to $18. Some belts had a wet sponge or batteries to help the flow of electricity, but most were designed to generate electricity from the wearer's sweat and zinc discs. Now, there were a number of these belts on the market. Sadly, they seemed to accomplish little, although their advertisements worked and tens of thousands were sold between 1885 and 1910. 
Of course, there were lawsuits involving the belts too. In 1892, a man sued Cornelius Bennett Harness, claiming that the belt made Bennett's hernia worse instead of curing it. He won a suit, and many men who'd purchased an electropathic harness belt also acted as prosecuting witnesses. Apparently, the zinc and copper discs left behind corrosive salt that caused sores. Ouch. (laughs) Well, enough about the electric belt. I'm sure you're listening to learn if you recognize my fictional article from the factual one. Is it factory fire ruled as arson? A notorious insurance swindler captured? Rathbun pleads not guilty? Or Unger and Brown guilty? Drum roll, please. The story I invented is factory fire ruled as arson. Not much is true in the story, except that there was a central manufacturing district established in 1905 along Morgan Street, where the fictitious Lankin Soap Factory fell victim to fire. Thanks for playing. I'll be back next week with another full-length episode. Until then, listen carefully, because it's tough to know if something is fact or fiction. Goodbye.